Intelligent, sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. It'll, it'll never be enough. I mean, as, as someone said famously over the weekend, how many documents do you need to, b- before you go ahead and vote no? Is this going to be 5149? You know, I don't know. Um, I, I'm going to vote yes because the people of Texas want a strong, principled constitutionalist who, who will defend our fundamental liberties, who will defend free speech, who will defend religious liberty, who will defend the Second Amendment. Of all the financial titans and philanthropists of the 20th century, none are more complex or mysterious than George Soros. He amassed billions through ruthless business decisions. He can move world financial markets simply by voicing an opinion or destabilize a government by buying and selling its currency. I am basically there to, uh, to make money. I cannot and do not look at the social consequences of, of what I do. I don't feel guilty because I'm engaged in an amoral activity which is not meant to have anything to do with guilt. And now, Stacey Washington. Oh, my goodness. Welcome back to the show, which I am paid to do. <laughs> Thank you for being here today. Um, I want to <laughs> point everybody to at Stacey on the right on Twitter and Instagram. I spent some time this morning as I was preparing for the show and kind of getting back into things because I really unplugged over the weekend. I, I spent some time just kind of listening to the hearings for uh, Justice Kavanaugh. And I just, man, that was something else. Um, So we covered that first hour. The podcasts are at AFR.net and also UrbanFamilyTalk.com. So don't forget, if you you ever need to listen to something, you can go there. Um, We also have the live streams that stay up all over the place. So, you know, you can find it anywhere. And and I encourage you to do so. Uh, Thanks for being here today. Happy Tuesday, Monday on a Tuesday. Awesome. Uh, and I want to now talk about this George Soros business. So first of all, I'm going to come clean. I had no idea that George Soros gave money to help countries as well as the political activism and the kind of um, currency domination things that he does. So he's a complex figure, as most individuals are who have the kind of wealth that he has. So the story here is a lot of people on the left think that George Soros is a bit of a hero um, because he funds a lot of organizations that advance lefty causes. And then on the right, a lot of people view him as basically, you know, from that movie with Kathy Bates, the Debo. He's just evil. And, you know, there's just no good in him. What I found in looking and listening to a lot of different programming in which he gave interviews himself. So listening to his own words is that he is a cold calculating individual but he would have to be to be one of the richest people on the planet. The question is, how does he get that money? So Friday, we listened to some audio from Dinesh D'Souza, where he's done a lot of the heavy lifting, the deep, deep research on George Soros and what he's done in certain countries, certain markets, manipulation of currencies, et cetera, and then how he uses those profits to operate within the United States, but he doesn't sell any of the securities or anything in the U.S. because he doesn't want to abide by our regulations, which, you know, I'm often talking about reducing regulation, but thank God we have the Securities and Exchange Commission to set up rules for how we can trade here and what's legal and what's not. Because of those rules, he chooses not to operate within our country. Financially, he can't do the same things that he does in other countries. That being said, 
He has done some significant work on purchasing attorneys general's races in a number of different areas across the country because he feels that having the attorneys general be individuals that are approved by him is policy that can actually be more impactful than, say, you know, having House of Representative members, members of of Congress that are elected from those same areas. That's pretty telling in and of itself as well. So let's first listen to how he tanks world currencies. And this is all information that I got from mainstream outlets. And the interview with uh, Dinesh D'Souza that we played on Friday, that was also he was on, uh, I believe he was on Fox News. You can see you can find that clip uh, online as well. I'll I'll, I'll put the links in uh, for those onto uh, the Facebook page. So you can look at these for yourself and you can watch the videos from his 60 minutes interviews, etc., And you can watch his face because oftentimes listening to the interviews here on the show, I mean, it's helpful. But if you want to actually look at his face and and see what he looked like when he said these things, that's pretty instructive, too. So first he talks about tanking world currencies. It's number one. Right now, his quantum group hedge fund moves $14 billion of rich investors' money around the world every day, looking for profits and answering to no one. Soros makes huge bets on whole countries and economies. Last year, when he saw cracks in the Asia boom, he began selling the currency in Thailand. Traders in Hong Kong followed suit, triggering a financial crisis that plunged much of Asia into a depression. In the last two years, you've been blamed for financial collapse of Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Japan, and Russia. All of the, all of the above. Well, all of the above. Yeah, yeah. Are you that powerful? No, I think there's a great misunderstanding. The Prime Minister of, of Malaysia. Yes. Um, said that the region spent 40 years trying to build up its economy and along comes a moron like Soros uh-huh. with a lot of money and it's all over. He called you a criminal. It's easier for him to blame an outside force <clears throat> than to admit that they were mismanaging uh, their economy and their currency. The uh, French finance minister uh, talked about hanging uh, speculators from lampposts. Okay, so in this audio bit, he basically deflects criticism of his activities because in his mind, if he doesn't make the money, someone else will. So if he sees an opportunity in a country that is poorly managing their currency or their markets, and it's an opportunity for him to make a lot of money, he's going to take that opportunity. And he doesn't feel that you you can call him a moron, you can call him the devil, you can say whatever you want about him, call him evil. He doesn't have any qualms about it, because if he didn't do it, someone else would. And in his mind, he should do it, he should earn the money, reap the benefits, and then take that money and exercise it to move pieces around on the playing board the way that he thinks they should go, because in his mind, he really is the best person to make those decisions. Now, you may disagree, but he would say, well, then where are your billions? Because if you had billions as I do, then you could sit with me and we could make these decisions, as he does with world leaders. He actually goes to world leaders and sits with them and gives them advice on what to do with their markets. So here he is talking about when he was a kid, And he was raised in this affluent family and they were Jewish. And then the father who, I mean, he did very well. He kind of saw the handwriting on the wall. He saw that Jewish families would not be able to live in peace and prosperity as they had done. And they were going to be 
negative things happening. He wasn't exactly sure all of it, but he knew something was on the pipeline. So he got his family out. With George, he found a benefactor who was German to claim George as his own, to say was his nephew, and to take care of him so that he wouldn't be taken away. If Jews were taken away, George wouldn't be among them. So the family was broken up. And that is when George was going around with this benefactor and they were confiscating the property of Jewish people. And George Soros was there. Listen to what he says. There's two of these audio bits about this. There's just, just listen to this. It's number uh, two. To understand the complexities and contradictions in his personality, you have to go back to the very beginning, to Budapest, where George Soros was born 68 years ago to parents who were wealthy, well-educated, and Jewish. When the Nazis occupied Budapest in 1944, George Soros's father was a successful lawyer. He lived on an island in the Danube and liked to commute to work in a rowboat. But knowing there were problems ahead for the Jews, he decided to split his family up. He bought them forged papers, and he bribed a government official to take 14-year-old George Soros in and swear that he was his Christian godson. But survival carried a heavy price tag. While hundreds of thousands of Hungarian Jews were being shipped off to the death camps, George Soros accompanied his phony godfather on his appointed rounds, confiscating property from the Jews. These are pictures from 1944 of what happened to George Soros's friends and neighbors. And so you're probably thinking, oh, well, you know, what could he do? What could he do? 14? So if he was 12 or 9 or 8, okay, but he was 14 years old. He could have said, Dad, I don't want to stay with this man. He's confiscating property from Jewish people. I mean, you would think there'd be something that he could have done. And even if he couldn't have done anything, even if he was forced to continue to do that, and that was a part of his life, then he could have said, I regret that deeply. I was 14. I had nowhere else to go. And so I did it. But I didn't do it because I thought it was right or I wanted to. But I had to eat. I had to live with this man, not, not his nephew, his godson. Um, he, I was playing a role. I knew if I didn't, I'd be in amongst those same people who were, they weren't just having their stuff confiscated. They were being carted off. But he doesn't say that. In fact, we're going we're gonna to listen to number three. He says he had no guilt about the confiscated property. He had no guilt whatsoever because just like he says when he tanks foreign markets, if I didn't do it, someone else would. He said if he didn't help, someone else would have done it. So it really is a net zero on the morality scale. It's number three. My understanding is, is that you went out with this protector of yours who swore that you were uh, his adopted godson. Yes, yes. Went out, in fact, and helped in the confiscation of property yes. from the Jews. That's right. I mean, that's, that sounds uh, like an experience that would send lots of people to the psychiatric couch for many, many years. Was it difficult? Uh, uh, not, not, not at all. Not at all. It, uh, maybe as a child you don't, you don't see the connection, uh, but it, was, it created no, no problem at all. No feeling of guilt? No. For example, that uh, I'm Jewish... Uh, and here I am watching these people go, I could just as easily be there. I should be there. None of that. Well, uh, of course, I, uh, I could be on the other side, or I could be the one from whom it, the thing is being taken away. Uh, 
um, but there was no sense that I shouldn't be there because uh, that was uh, uh, well actually funny way it's just like in markets that if I weren't there of course I wasn't doing it but somebody else would, 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 would be taking it away anyhow. In other words, the, whether I was there or not, I was only a spectator, the property was being taken away. So the, I had no role in taking away that property. So I had no sense of guilt. You hear how I cleaned that up? He took a second to think it through and realized he'd just admitted to confiscating property from fellow Jewish people, and so he cleaned it up. He said he was there, but he had no role in taking it. He did have a role. He has admitted in other interviews that he actually would go around since he was a 14-year-old boy and Jewish people didn't actually suspect him of being a part of the Nazi movement. He would go and he would kind of scout it out and say, he'd go back and tell his protector, they have this and they have that. Um, You know, I heard them talking about maybe slipping away because they're scared. They think something might happen to them. He took to the role readily, which goes back to his original family, the dad who bought him the papers and all of that. What kind of people were they? What did what kind of morals did they raise him with that he was he had no qualms whatsoever? Or maybe he did have qualms. And now he's just erased those because in order to cope with what he did, he can either be repentant about it and basically accept blame, which would make him, you know, a part of the problem. Or he can say, it's just like with markets. Anyone can take advantage of failing markets, and that's what I did, only I wasn't a part of it. I didn't actually take anything. But he, de- he also was not asked by his questioner, these softball interviews, that's why they're a problem. The questioner should have said, when you say you didn't have a role, you mean you took part in none of it. You didn't report on people. You didn't share information about what people had. You didn't do anything to help your protector. It's kind of hard to believe at 14 years old, the protector's dragging him around to confiscate stuff from people and he didn't have to pick anything up, touch anything, say anything. He did nothing. He just stood around like a, a lump. He was like a pole standing there, like a, a light pole. That, that doesn't pass the smell test. But this is why he gets this reputation of being so evil. That's why people use the word evil because this is when he was 14. So if he was able to do that at 14 and accept it, and really never feel any remorse over it, what is he capable of today? Well, we'll get into that. We have one more segment about this, and we'll take your calls. Call lines are open, 866-963-2037. Yeah, I have a little bit more for you on, on George Soros. And then I leave it up to you to catch all of the fantastic documentaries from Dinesh D'Souza. He's the leading expert on this, I feel. We'll be right back. Eighty percent of the time, an abortion-minded mother who views an ultrasound or sonogram of her baby will choose life. Here's the story of Candace. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. There are currently pre-born centers which do not have an ultrasound machine. Would you sponsor a machine today? Dial pound 250 and say keyword baby. 
That's pound 250 and say baby. Or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Your love can save a life. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. A recent study in the journal Lancet concludes that there is no safe level of alcohol consumption. This seems to contradict some other studies that argue that there were possible benefits to moderate use of alcohol. Now, the researchers looked at data from 28 million people worldwide. That allowed them to compare the few benefits of alcohol consumption that might be preventative for conditions like ischemic heart disease and diabetes to the increased risk of cancers and other diseases. The authors suggest that public health organizations consider recommendations for abstention. The conclusions of the research paper have been challenged at a number of levels. For example, the increase of risk is slight for one drink a day, but increases significantly for someone drinking more than that. That is why some critics challenge the abstention recommendation. They remind us that there is no safe level for driving, but the government doesn't recommend people avoid driving. But it is worth repeating that the study concludes that no level of alcohol consumption improves health, And we are all aware of people who promise themselves and others that they will only have one drink and end up having many more. Another question is whether the study considered all the factors. Did they miss a confounding variable? A famous example was the erroneous conclusion from one study that coffee caused pancreatic cancer. The authors did not adjust for the fact that coffee drinkers are more likely to smoke. It was smoking that killed people, not coffee. But it does appear that researchers did take into account such data. This study illustrates once again that alcohol consumption is a global health issue where the risks outweigh the few possible benefits. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. All right, we're back. Thank you so much for being here today. And oh my goodness, I'm so I'm seeing people commenting about the Soros information um, that he didn't have, you know, a conscious and all of that. And I, you know, it's hard to know um, if for, for a little bit of perspective, I, I stopped for a second and I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. You know, what were you like when you were 14? I can't find any way to correlate what I was like at 14 to what he's describing that he participated in. But I also, I just, like you want, you want to try to figure it out, right? You think about what he's saying and you want to try to understand. And so you think back, you're like, well, I wasn't like that, but maybe it was the time he was living in, watching all of those people getting you know, carted away and knowing it couldn't be for good because their stuff was being confiscated. Because if, if, if the Nazis were really not going to do anything bad to the Jewish people that they carted away, they would have left their homes intact and left all their stuff there because the people that you're carting away will be back. When you cart people off in railway cars and they're crying and they're, you know, they're, they're literally, they're being abducted. And then you let your jackbooted thugs go in and confiscate their property or take it from them and then let them get hauled away. The inference there is that people aren't coming back. When someone gives your stuff away, that's a real huge red flag. So I wonder, did he just say, 
this is where my dad placed me. I don't have any choice. This is what I have to do. And so he just did it. And then now, because he did that, it opened the door to so much more activity that most of us would find repugnant. I am not against people who have earned a lot of money taking their money and donating it to different causes to try to you know, impact things in one way or the other. That is one of the blessings of working hard, praying over your work, you know, and, and earning a lot of money. But not every person who earns a lot of money and is rich is morally sound. And we know that. And so, you know, we have to work against that. You have to work against individuals who try to change things for the bad. And you, you know, try to support individuals who are changing things for the good. This is the world we live in. But it's interesting to hear him talk this way. Like, I just don't know after doing that, that I could, that I could after doing that, like taking stuff from people and knowing what happened to them and then later knowing what, like, it's almost as if you're listening to him talk about this a couple of years after he took the stuff. Not now, where decades have passed, and now we know exactly what happened to his countrymen who were hauled away, who he helped take the stuff. They were tortured. They were gassed. They had Some of them had their skin and body parts made into other things. They were treated like lab animals. And not only that, but the murder, the, the murder and the torture, the starvation the conditions that they were subjected to before they were killed and then the way they were desecrated afterwards, just thrown into group graves, you know, just, just, I mean, it's barbarism on a scale that is hard to comprehend. And then you hear him talking about it. And so you just, I never have like so far over these past few days, since when I, when I first heard it, I haven't been able to make peace with it. I don't believe that as a 14 year old, and I had my moments that I could have done what he did and then later in my later years be like, well, if I didn't do it, somebody else would have. I, so I don't get it. I tried. I tried to understand, but I, I didn't get it. And, you know, I just it's, it's not right. And, and so here he is. He's admitting to being a Nazi collaborator and denying it all in the same breath. It's just it's crazy pants. It's number four. George Soros, in a way, is, uh, is Donald Trump without the humility. <laughs> One of your money manager told us uh, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, George really does think he's a god. <laughs> I mean, if you think that you're a god and you go into financial markets, you are bound to come out broke. So the fact that I'm not broke shows that I don't believe that I'm god. So he hates... Donald Trump so much, this interviewer does, that he says, you're like Donald Trump without the humility, without the, you know. No, he's not. Again, when has Donald Trump ever in his life or any of his family members since they had to go back and trace his lineage all the way back to the little island where his mother came from, when have any of those people, Trumps or Trumps, ever killed anyone or confiscated property from anyone? They have been capitalists, they have been business owners, they have been immigrants, but they have never harmed anyone in the way that he's discussing. I know there's some stories about, uh, you know, the vendors who were unpaid on projects and things like that. And those vendors had the recourse of, you know, you file a claim or you sue a person and then you can, you know, get a judge to adjudicate against them to, to get the money that you're owed paid back. And that is an unfortunate way to have to be paid as a vendor. And I don't agree with that. I don't know the truth of those stories. I've read them. I don't know if 
Donald Trump was in the right for not paying them, the work was shoddy, they breached the contract, or if it was that he owed the money and he didn't pay and they were, you know, working to get paid. I don't know. But even if he's guilty of all the things he's ever been accused of, he's never done that, where he literally helped Nazis take property from Jewish people. Oh, by the way, he's Jewish too. So I won't, I won't be that one. Um, you know, maybe he'll come to know the Lord. I don't know. I just, it's, it's, I've, I've, as much of the audio and videos that I watched to get those few little clips together and I watched them and I listened and I was like, man, what is like, I, I just don't, I don't get it. I do not get George Soros and what, what he, what he is. Um, and a lot of people in the comments are saying I knew right from wrong at 14 and that he was just greedy. And I tend to agree with that. Like I, we have 14 year olds. Well, we had a 14 year old. She's 15 now. And the two older kids were once 14. My husband was once 14. I was once 14. I know a lot of other people who have 14 year old kids. Uh, 14 year olds have the capacity to know right from wrong. You are, in, in the age in which you can be held accountable for your own actions as far as, you know, sin, not sin, you know, obedience, not obedient. Um, he definitely does not hold himself accountable for what he participated in. And we don't know more details because the interviewers never seem to ask him, did your protector make you do this? Did, you know, these are the kind of things that if, if I had the chance to interview him, I would say, look, I, I'm kind of baffled by the way you've described this. Can you tell us about what it was like? I know it was a long time ago, but did your protector who you you're living with him, um, you you owe him because you're living with him. Did he make you do these things? Right. Did did he did he tell you you do these things or you're going along with your people because we all know who you are or your father paid me to take care of you. But in order for me to do that, you have to do certain things. He never even says that. And, and in some ways, the fact that he doesn't say that, that he doesn't volunteer that information, shows that he really doesn't feel any remorse about what he participated in. And that is just, it's just like, I don't even know how to just, I, don't, just, I can't, I can't, people. So I said I would share with you, and there was so much more. I don't want to do more than two segments on it. Um, and we'll, we'll take your calls. If you have comments about this um, you know, this thing going on here with George Soros and his truth. It's 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. We know as far as the rest of it is concerned, you know, George Soros has been very, very open with his desire to, to kind of lessen um, this whole, you know, individual liberty, constitution, all these rights and freedoms we have here in America, he's not really down with those. And so one of the things that I thought was interesting is that in countries that are smaller than ours, that in some ways, a tiny country has a lot more to lose than we do because we have not just our military might, but there's the strength that comes from being a nation of over 300 million people. And of course, we have two, we have two coasts, which is, well, obviously we have the Gulf, but I'm talking about, you know, we don't, we're not hemmed in by countries on all sides. We really have an optimal situation, which is God's providence for our country um, in, in where we're located, the kind of resources that are present on our landmass, our population size and our, you know, economy, economic might, military might, etc. Other countries don't have those same advantages and they've had to really fight Soros off the same way we would fight off an aggressor who was trying to take us over militarily. And one of those countries is Hungary. 
Now, Hungary's been very open about not wanting Soros to meddle in their affairs. And one of the things that they did was they went to great lengths, like this is a current story, to squash or quash Soros-founded and funded universities, where he funds a university and then the university teaches ideals that he approves of. This is in Budapest, Hungary. This is next week, as in this story is from September 4th. Today's September 4th. Next week, 1,500 students from more than 100 countries will converge in the heart of the regal city on the Danube, Budapest, to prepare for classes at a university that enjoys respect among Hungarian academics, top international rankings, and it is accredited in America. It has American accreditation. The only thing Central European University lacks is assurance that this year's back-to-school rush in Budapest won't be its last. The university's right to admit new students expires in January, and a hostile Hungarian government shows no sign of granting a reprieve. We've been taken hostage. This is a quote from Michael Ignatieff, a Canadian human rights scholar and former politician who, as the university's president, may soon have to lead its retreat into exile. I don't want to do that, he says, but we're coming up to crunch time. This is unprecedented. Most European Union nations don't even have a, uh, a precedent or a law or anything like that that allows them to expel an entire university. But Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's favorite boogeyman, George Soros, is the founder of Central European University. So Orban has a campaign to dismantle Europe's multicultural, tolerant liberalism and cement a culture that is unapologetically Christian, conservative, and nationalist. Now, before we start picking sides here, it is Hungary's right to be a liberal, multicultural, tolerant nation, or if the people of Hungary want to have an unapologetically Christian, conservative, nationalist country, that is their right as well. Notice that when liberals get on their soapboxes, they'll tell you in a heartbeat, you can't have a student group that's unapologetically Christian. But if you say we have a student group that's unapologetically LGBT, they're like more power to you. That's tolerance. Do you see how that works? It's the same double standard they're applying to the whole uh, hearings to confirm uh, Justice Kavanaugh. The Constitution and the Federalist Papers are awesome if they can use it to bludgeon someone they don't think is a good nominee, which, by the way, that happened. That happened today. A Democrat was quoting from the Federalist Papers. I thought the apocalypse was nigh. I started making myself a pumpkin pumpkin spice latte because I thought I was going on up. I mean, I'm honestly, a Democrat was quoting the Federalist Papers today in her opposition to Justice Kavanaugh. Yeah. And Dianne Feinstein was actually making the argument that you have to be able to change the Constitution in order to adjust to these wonderful advancements that have occurred in technology surrounding firearms. And so you have to be able to change the Constitution. She also believes simultaneously in her same brain that you cannot change the Constitution because the Constitution finds that there's a right for women to, un- to abort their unborn babies. She holds those two thoughts at the same time, even though they contradict. Either the Constitution is inviolable, and if there's a constitutional right to abortion, then there is a constitutional right to keep and bear arms, and there it is. Or the right to abortion that was found to be constitutional, not in the Constitution, but constitutional by a Supreme Court sitting at that time can be adjusted after learning that technology shows that unborn babies feel pain. 
and that abortion is a violent death for them that causes them excruciating agony and that they are indeed human beings because science proves that we we procreate after our own kind. Humans make baby humans. And therefore, even though the human may be attached to its mother and inside of a womb, it is still a human being. Scientific advancements prove that for us. Don't tell Diane Feinstein. So back to this. You've got this. uh, he's, He's a Hungarian prime minister, and he wants to see his nation back on a more traditional footing. And he doesn't feel that Soros and his university are beneficial to that. He says uh, that one of Soros's plots is a plan to create a mixed population in Europe. He doesn't agree with that. He won a landslide re-election in April, and now he's blitzing against gender studies programs, which are a waste of the parents' money. He's blitzing against an attempt to take over scientific research funding, and Soros is pushing to remake the nation's literary canon. Because, you know, if you change the books that a nation reads and you change the history that's in the books that they read, then you can change the way a nation of people thinks about themselves and sees the world. Soros knows this. That's why he set up a university there. He thinks they're ripe for a takeover. And this new prime minister says, we ain't ripe. We, we, we're not having it. No, thanks. You, you need to go. So his ambitions for a cultural revolution extend beyond his nation's borders across Europe. Um, this, this new prime minister, Orban, proclaimed in a speech at a July youth festival that he sees a chance to wave goodbye to liberal democracy and with it a generation of intellectual and artistic elites who advance the ideology of multiculturalism culturalism and adaptable family models. Now, remember, these adaptable family models don't yield the best educated, most stable children. So again, whether you're okay with his you know, kind of lambasting multiculturalism, I, I believe what he's saying is he wants... Hungarians to be Hungarian. So he's not really concerned about what your background is. It's that if you're in Hungary, you want to be a citizen of the nation of Hungary. And this is a primary concern for any nation that wishes to remain economically viable and sound. So it's not about whether or not people are white or black here in America. I know that has been the constant refrain against President Trump is that he's some kind of racist because he wants Americans to be American. It's about Americans being American because French They only consider the French. To be French in France, you need to be a French ancestry. Anyone else who lives there is just a third country national. In America, when you come here, if you get citizenship, you're an American. You don't have to hyphenate yourself. You can just call yourself an American. This is a fundamental difference that's important, and I understand what this prime minister is trying to do. We'll be back with more right after this. take to live an uncommon life. Here's former Super Bowl winning coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment. Your perspective today has a lot to do with what happens tomorrow, so it's vital to make sure your perceptions are positive. Envision your future, your accomplishments and achievements, and your God-given significance. Base it on what you know to be true, of course, not on your own sense of pride or on unhealthy ways to satisfy your needs. But within the values and dreams God has given you, paint a picture of where you want to go, what you want to be like, and what you want to accomplish. 
With God's help, we can be intentional and choose to envision a life of significance, possibility, and impact. New York Times bestselling author, Tony Dungy. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. Hurricane Harvey was the second worst disaster ever seen on American soil. 8 Days of Hope responded to that need in Houston, Texas, back in March, where 4,700 volunteers came from all over the world in all 50 states to love and serve people in need. When we left, we realized that there was still much more to do. So many people still were hurting, hundreds of thousands of families looking for somebody, anybody to help them. Here's your chance. Eight Days of Hope 16 will be back in Southeast Houston October 13th through October 20th. It's free. We provide the food and lodging. We're looking for skilled professionals, people who are semi-skilled, and people with no skills or less skilled and want to give back. For more information, you go to our website, 8daysofhope.com. We're expecting about 2,500 volunteers from all over America to go back to Houston to love and serve those in need. Hope to see you in Houston, 8daysofhope.com. For more information, 8daysofhope.com. Donald Trump's America. President Trump is in a war of words with the leader of the nation's largest labor union. Richard Trumka is president of the AFL-CIO. On Fox News Sunday, he reacted to the president's tweet saying a new North American trade agreement could proceed without Canada. The three countries in North America, the economy's pretty integrated. And it's pretty hard to see how that would work without having Canada in the deal. Trumka says he's not even sure Mexico's end was set in stone. Because the language isn't drafted, we haven't seen whole chapters of the thing. Trumpka went on to dispute the president's claim of being the champion of American workers. The scale is, is weighted against him because he's done more to hurt workers than to help workers. The president tweeted on Labor Day about record lows in unemployment and that workers are prospering. He also hit back at Trumpka saying he has represented workers poorly. U.S. and Canadian negotiators are scheduled for a midweek resumption of talks. Gernal Scott, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Call lines are open at 866-963-2037. 866-963-2037. Uh, good to be with you today. And um, so I, I think we took just an interesting... I wouldn't call it a deep dive, but we definitely have a little bit more of an understanding of George Soros. And I think one of the things that we can do is, you know, as as we learn more about what he's doing, we can cover it here on the program. We can buff up on it. We can definitely watch the uh, the interviews. I'm going to see if we can get um, Dinesh Souza back on the program. He's been on a couple of times. Great guest. He's so knowledgeable. Uh, see if we can get him on to talk about George Soros and his latest documentary that he has, which is not specifically about George Soros, but it's about America. And um, I, I'm, I'm interested in hearing more about what he has to say, what he's learned about him, and not, not for the purpose of demonizing him. I think his work speaks for itself, but more along the lines of really looking at um, just the so he, he tends to take a role in international affairs, but what I saw in the audio was that he, he also tends to take, like it's a different role here than it is in Great Britain, and it's a different role in Great Britain than it is in a country in South Africa. No matter what, his money affords him an audience with world leaders that 
it's it's unprecedented. It's like he's the president of his own country, but he's not. He doesn't have his own country, but he doesn't hesitate to meddle in other countries, robbing them of their resources. They they say he gutted the Russian economy uh, by moving on their markets and making announcements about their markets that completely destroyed so much of their wealth, which hurt middle class Russians. And so, you know, this, this, these are things that we have to kind of uh, keep in mind as we're going forward. Um, just to kind of complete over the to kind of complete the story about this this um, university. So when Orban was elected prime minister this year, President Trump called him and they have uh, kind of reopened relations between Hungary and the United States where they had been a little frosty and, and kind of not not really uh, substantial. And so we've had our ambassador um, go over to Hungary and they've sent their foreign minister uh, to the State Department. That was back in May. And there's even been discussion about a meeting between the Prime Minister Orban and and President Trump himself, which Orban really wants that. He really wants to have a meeting with the President of the United States. The new U.S. ambassador in Budapest is a Trump appointee, David Kornstein, and um, he's going to be discussing the university and the possibilities because of, you know, the, the timing, January, they have to have the ability to have the university in Hungary renewed by that time. So in order to do that, they're going to have some communications between our uh, U.S. ambassador and their prime minister, and um, apparently America wants Hungary to back off and let the CEU, with their dual accreditation in Hungary and the U.S., to remain there in Budapest. Um, but I think Orban is going to be looking for ways that he can get something that he wants out of the deal with the university, namely that they would stop pushing these far-left liberal ideas that go against what Hungarians want for their culture. And how can I say that? Because they elected Orban. If they wanted a multicultural society, if they thought that was great, they would have elected someone who that was their, their, you know, they were running on that. They didn't. They elected someone who is being termed in this article as far right. I don't see it as being far right when you say I'm all about this country. Uh, I, I like to use it the same kind of analogy that people really seem to understand and it really enrages liberals when I say this, but it's the truth. Are you pro, like, so for me, it would be pro Washington. Am I pro Washington or am I pro the general public? In other words, if I had a chance to feed 20 strangers dinner tonight and leave my family hungry or feed my husband and kids and say, listen, you know, hopefully you have your own families, but I'm going to feed my family first. Which of those am I going to pick? Well, I'm obviously going to choose to feed my husband and the kids. It's the same thing with my husband. It's the same thing with the kids. Not that we don't care about what happens outside of our house, but we first take care of what's inside this house. That's the first priority. We don't earn money or do things that are to a benefit some strangers. We do the things that benefit our household first. We're primarily concerned with that. That is biblical. The Bible says a man who doesn't take care of his own wife and kids is an, worse than an infidel. That's what the Bible says. They're worse than an unbeliever. So why would not a nation, a sovereign nation, care for its own citizens first 
before going outside of its borders and caring for others. And that is the reason why you see Rand Paul rail against our USAID program and our foreign aid and the billions of dollars that we give away. We have to borrow money to give away to other countries. He rails against it because it is going against that core. It's just a basic common sense kernel. It's like as common as a penny that you take care of home first before you go out and take care of others. And if you take care of home first and you still are found wanting, that means you're not yet able to take care of others. It doesn't mean you won't at some, po- at some point do that or that you don't want to help, but it means that right now you need to first take care of your business at home and proper ordering of priorities and resources yield you the ability at some point to be able to have more than enough and to be able to take care of others. It's that simple. It really is. So there's nothing far right about that. That is the way that liberals use language to demonize common sense principles like taking care of your own family first. So um, apparently, I guess Justice Kavanaugh is going to speak shortly, or maybe he already has. The joy of doing the show in the afternoon is we get all the morning news the joy of the show in the afternoon is sometimes news is going on while we're on the air. Um, so I, I get, we'll, we'll have more for you in uh, the, tomorrow's show on the confirmation hearings. And we'll have audio and things like that. And we definitely want to hear from you on your opinions um, on what's going on. Um, and so, yeah, just, it's just been a really interesting um course of events. So I said we were going to talk about Governor Ducey nominating Senator John Kill to replace John McCain. So this is interesting because from what I can tell, first of all, John Kill is the one who's been kind of shepherding Justice Kavanaugh around Washington, D.C. during the confirmation process to the different offices of anyone who's wanted to interview him. John Kill has been taking him through that process. And John Kill was a senator. He retired. He's uh, in his mid-70s. And he received the approval of um, Cindy McCain and others in the McCain world who have said, you know, they're they're uh, they approve of him filling this role. Now, what's interesting about it is the buzz is already out there that apparently he's going to be filling this role until December, the December recess. So he'll be there long enough to vote to confirm um Justice Kavanaugh and to take care of some unfinished business that they were votes they were unable to take due to John McCain's illness. And then after that, they'll move forward and um, they'll be moving on with a nominee, hopefully someone that could hold the position for much longer. And so, you know, I think it's fantastic. Um, At least it's someone we know is a reliable vote for the Kavanaugh nomination. Um, and and for some other things that need to get done, some other priorities in the Senate. And that will take the balance back to, you know, 51 plus the vice president if there's a tiebreaker. Um, and so that that's I think it's as good as we could expect. Now, the other piece of news that broke today that I thought was fascinating is Rahm Emanuel. You know, he's the much beleaguered mayor of Chicago who recently has had a number of uh, con- core constituencies, namely the south side of Chicago, have turned against him because they feel he's standing in the way of them getting extra police, et cetera, et cetera. He came out with a statement saying that um, 
communities that don't work with the police have a moral problem and it's culture that contributes to the high crime rate in South side of Chicago. And he was immediately vilified and he lost even more of the uh, support of the black community. And so I guess he sees the handwriting on the wall and he's not going to run again. What's interesting about that is that this seems to be an ongoing pattern. Anyone who speaks out about the rate of fatherlessness in the black community, the, the you know, lack of kids getting a good education in the black community, the lack of control over the schools, et cetera. Anyone who speaks out about that, all of a sudden, the black community no longer supports them. It's as if truth telling has become, you know, a crime. Um, so, of course, President Obama has weighed in. He issued a statement. He says, as a mayor, a congressman, and my first White House chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel has been a tireless and brilliant public servant. His work to improve our schools is paying dividends by helping our teachers and students achieve faster academic improvement than students in 96% of America's school districts. The announcement to establish universal pre-K in Chicago on top of universal kindergarten will give all of our kids the best possible start. And its implementation of debt-free community college will help prepare all of our young people for a new economy. With record job growth and record employment over his terms in office, Chicago is better and stronger for his leadership. And I was a better president for his wise counsel at a particularly perilous time for our country. (laughs) I agree with him there. I've been blessed to call Rom my friend. Whatever he chooses to do next, I know he'll continue to make a positive difference just as he has throughout his career in public service. And Michelle and I wish Rom and Amy all the best as they consider this next phase in their lives. Hmm. So Rahm Emanuel's 58 years old. He's hardly done in politics, although he's got to be really tired, you know, from from being the mayor of Chicago. I would wonder if he wouldn't just take some time and just kind of be with his family and take some time off. Um, it, you kind of also wonder, would he do statewide office in Illinois? Um, the two senators from there are Dick Durbin and Tammy Duckworth. They're not going anywhere. Uh, Republican Governor Bruce Rauner is about to face re-election, uh, but Rom's Chicago record might have made him damaged goods for statewide for for right now. Um, he could also run for the House. He could try to go back into Congress. So a lot of speculation on what he plans to do, but he made the announcement with his wife standing at his side. And I think um, there, there's just, I just wish the people of Chicago could, Take a second and say, you know, we've tried Democrat this, Democrat that for decades. They've just Democrat, Democrat, Democrat. Why not try some ideas that are different from the ones that have been tried to see if they can make some changes in communities, in the economic outlook, in the amount of people who are pouring out of Illinois? They're, they're the number one for population loss in the country. Um, people are leaving Illinois in droves, not just because of the taxes, but because of the crime and the corruption and the graft. And the taxes. Yeah, the taxes are a huge factor. So it's been it's been rough. Um, so there's that. And then we kind of circle back around to Colin Kaepernick because apparently um, I'm wondering that. So there's some allegations that he's possibly been on the Nike payroll since 2011. So. Kaepernick and Nike actually agreed to a new contract, even though he's been with Nike since 2011. So 
interest from other shoe companies played a role in Nike deciding to sign him. The contract is a wide endorsement where Kaepernick would have his own branded line, including shoes, shirts, jerseys, and more. Kaepernick signed a star contract that puts him on the level with a top-end NFL player worth millions per year plus royalties. And, oh, wow. We haven't heard much of him in the other endorsement world, but apparently he was always on the payroll with Nike. So that hasn't changed. So he's gotten this really big, um, this really big deal with them. And it just remains to see, be seen how they're going to handle it since they're losing market share. A part of what they use to pay these big celebrities is, you know, money generated from selling stock. When people dump your stock off because they don't like something, a decision that you've made, it makes it kind of hard to justify that decision. It's a contract, though. So it will be, you know, what is there a way to get out? I don't know. Apparently, he's he's been with them for quite a while. 2011. That's a long time. Um, I just wish that at some point he could admit that the, the ridiculousness that he perpetuated with the kneeling on the job has cost him dearly. And then he could tell the people who actually think he did the right thing in doing that. Look, I had a huge platform. I have a huge platform. Colin Kaepernick has lots of followers on Instagram and social media where he could have done amazing activism and kept it away from his job. Had he done that, he'd still be playing football. He'd still be rich. He'd still be able to do. All right? So, when we get back, or no, no, we're not getting back. That's the end of the show. Tomorrow, we'll be back with you with more Stacy on the Right tomorrow. God bless and have a fantastic evening. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.